I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we are talking about Ex Machina, the 2014 film written and directed by Alex Garland. I'm joined by part of the Beyond the Screenplay team, Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Callados. Hello. And we are joined once again by the wonderful creator of the wonderful YouTube channel, Just Right, writer and critic, Sage Hyden. Sage, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Again. Again. This is your fifth appearance, I think. So you are, once again, strongly in the lead of uh, clearly our, our favorite guest. I, I want to maintain that lead, you know. That's <laughs> right. that's really the, the why I'm coming on here. There's a there's a prize at the end of every year that we give whoever had the most appearances. <laughs> so you're the front runner. Vince, remind me to figure out what that prize is later. <clears throat> Note to our producer. <laughs> so Ex Machina is one of my favorite films. We've, we've talked about this a little bit because we did a episode on our top 10 favorite films of the 2010s. Ex Machina was on your list, Brian. Mm-hmm. On Alex and I's list, it was both number one spots for both of us. So clearly we are fans of this movie. <laughs> uh, and it was really fun. You know, it's, it's one of the earlier videos that I made a video for on Lessons from the Screenplay. I remember that was around the time that I started to feel comfortable with the channel. Like it was the last video I made in 2016, which was the year that it started. It lives in my brain as like, a, okay, around then I started to feel like I knew what I was doing. So I have kind of fond memories of that. And like the little graphic that I made at the beginning of like, there's an image of like a frame flying by, like it's on a projector. And I was really proud of my After Effects work. But anyway, so all that to say, lots of Ex Machina love from me. And that has been explored a lot. But Sage, I want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on this movie? What was your first experience with it? Absolutely adore the movie. I think it's like, it's such a creepy film. <laughs> um, it's unnerving and it's a movie that is very good at putting you in the headspace of one character for its entire run. And then the minute it's over, you see it from a completely different perspective and you have to like question like every single thing that you thought you knew about it. So yeah, huge, huge fan of the film and then huge fan of the director as well, who also did uh, Annihilation, which I'm sure is probably also on your list of uh, top 10 uh, movies of the decade. So yeah, fantastic. We did do a podcast episode about Annihilation. It's buried in our, it's a patron exclusive uh, because it got a little heated. We have, <laughs> we have mixed feelings about it. <laughs> yeah. I really enjoy a lot about Annihilation, but I also think it's an imperfect movie mm. that gets explored on that episode. What an ending though. What just, an ending. Just like this movie. Yes, yeah. indeed. I feel like Alex Garland, the topics that he tackles are really interesting to me and i feel like i'm on a similar wavelength in terms of like interests and like consciousness and reality and what does it all mean yeah and so i really like that he's trying to explore all that via film via tv series and stuff like that he's also really good at uh like just these really long wordless segments like at Mm. the ends Mm. of the movies like everything's been (laughs) set up and he can just like let it all play out in the visuals like both those movies are really strong for that yeah that's very true. How many times do you feel like you've seen it? Because I feel like I've I've seen this movie so many times that I can kind of hardly even remember exactly what my first experience was, where, you know, you're talking about the first time you see it, you see it from one perspective, and then immediately you reconsider that. Do you feel like when you've watched it again, if you've watched it again, what are some of those other perspectives that you're considering? I watched it twice close to around the time that it came out, and I don't think I've seen it again until this viewing for this podcast oh wow but i feel like it's it's a movie that you that you just memorize Mm -hmm. on like like very easily because it's just 
the film feels so deliberate and it's like such a clear construction in what's going on in the story. There's not a lot of characters. There's, you know, it's very clear what the escalation is. So I, I just feel like the movie was like burned in my memory and I didn't need to watch it again, even though like it benefits from being watched again, as I was saying, mm -hmm. just like with, you know, asking yourself how each of the characters are, are seeing the story versus how we're being shown the story. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things that I love about the movie is that how it plays with what information it reveals when. And I think that's why I've enjoyed reading the script multiple times and watching it over and over again and trying to extract all the information, how it does those things. I love movies that are kind of games of cat and mouse and like people mm. trapped in a room and it's just it could almost be a play mm. if some things were changed. But yeah, so Alex and Brian, I want to hear from you guys also. What do you like about this movie? What are your thoughts on this movie? What do you think it does well? etc. Alex, you want to start? Michael, you and I both have this as number one on our top 10 films of the decade for the 2010s. I don't find every every moment of this movie to be absolutely perfect. There are, so, like, there are a couple of scenes or moments that feel a bit off to me in a way that doesn't feel quite right. Or It's not like it's a perfect movie, but what it is is a wonderful just like think piece, uh, like a sci-fi conversation starter, moody like just clever, wonderful package. It's a movie that I've rewatched many times, just like you, Michael. And it's so rewatchable because it's so open in so many ways. I think like when I, when I sit back and watch this movie, I feel like the movie actually gives me time to just think while I'm watching it because it's not action packed or rushed. It's very deliberate. Like you said, Sage, it's almost asking questions and then like giving you a little moment to think about that question before you move on to the next scene. It's very creepy, like you said, Sage. It's it's not relaxing. Uh, it, it does put you on edge. It puts me into a really interesting mood and a really interesting headspace. And it is asking the questions that I find very interesting uh, about consciousness. And if we were to create consciousness in something besides, in like a an animal, how would we know when it's there? How do you test that? How could you, could you ever know? And uh, the whole movie, it's like there's tests within tests within tests. Like the movie is a test of the audience and like, who do you identify with? What do you make of the situation? Does Ava feel things for Caleb? Is, is there nothing there? It's just all a robot just coldly using the humans. Do you identify with the machines? Do you identify with the people? Like Alex Garland has come out and said he feels nothing for the guys in this movie. Like like when he wrote this movie, he's like, I'm 100% on the robot side. Like mm -hmm. the guys are like, I have nothing, no warm feelings for them at all, actually, uh, which is really interesting. But he's also very like subtle about that in, right. in the movie. He's very mm -hmm. careful not to make Caleb overtly unlikable at the end. Right. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, and that's what I love about the film, I think, is it, it's so... Alex Garland walks this tightrope with the film where he he never does the kind of like cheap or easy thing of of just making these are the good guys, these are the bad guys. This is the one dimensional way to read this character. Oh, this is definitely the answer at the end of what it all meant. So it, it's it's just a rare movie that I feel like it does all feel coherent and add up and feel intentional and yet it still is can be wide like wildly open to different interpretations and different readings and different theories about what's actually happening you know in the mind of the machines which i think is just it's really hard to do that well and and to make it all feel intentional and coherent and not just kind of abstract all over the place basically yeah i just find it to be an amazing balancing act of a movie and i just loved watching it over and over again and just seeing it through different lenses on different viewings and and admiring how I can enjoy it equally well kind of through different lenses, which is 
yeah, just mm-hmm. so cool when a, like an artifact like, can be that way. They can they can shift based on what you bring into it and what theory you can watch it with a theory that Caleb's a machine. You know, like that's mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. like a fan theory. You know, so there, there's so many ways to to read it, and that it does all of that while also being like an entertaining thriller experience. Right. Also, mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about this in, in Annihilation, but I, I feel like there are ways to do movies that are interesting think pieces that are mostly there for that and if you can get on that wavelength then it's great but if not you're sort of left behind and if like ex machina for me has this balance of all those things that you were saying alex while also just being entertaining on the surface and compelling from scene to scene yeah and claustrophobic yeah Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. a simple understandable story being told on the first viewing which requires no further like thought if you don't want to do that um, mm-hmm. But it, if you do want to return to the film, it has the space and the openness to just have fun with your interpretations over and over again. And like I'll say too, just what you're talking about with like viewing the film through different lenses, I feel like on my first viewing, I was probably more likely to be like, this is a movie about artificial intelligence and consciousness and, and all that stuff, right? But it's like on your second viewing and, and more that you can like view it more from like, this is much more about gender and and racial stereotypes and mm-hmm. male fantasy and yeah yeah fetishization mm-hmm. tech bros yeah you know and <laughs> white knighting like there's there's like a million different co- like gendered concepts that you can bring to this film that i think it's much more about at its core than it is about about artificial intelligence i think what's so brilliant about it is that you can't say that it's more of either like like both are there so they're woven so into the fabric of the film. They are asking these existential questions about consciousness. That is a huge interest of Alex Garland's, but he's also managed to, there's, there's so few characters there and they're, but they're also encoded with meaning mm-hmm. because of the gender dynamics and because of race and yeah, all that is also there to be interpreted. Mm-hmm. I feel like more, like more of the, like the dialogue is all about AI, right? Like they're always talking about AI. So like, you feel like, like from a tactile level, like this, like the surface stuff is telling you it's about that stuff. And it is then like, it's, it's a lot more of the the subtext that's that, that uh, informs a gendered reading. The images and the, just the visual kind of symbols and the other parts of the film language are giving you other ways to think about what this all means. Whereas you're right, the dialogue is very heady and very Alex Garlandy. Right. I mean, yeah. Then you like go and watch devs and you like wish <laughs> it was working on like more levels. Or at right. least that's how I felt. Where like intellectually, I loved all the things that devs was dealing with, you know, the show created by Alex Garland, but it didn't have as many of those levels. And so it, it felt less compelling and interesting and not requiring a rewatch to to get more out of it. So yeah, it's just interesting. The Again, the things that Alex Garland is interested in i'm interested in but i feel like ex machina is this kind of like perfect package that has all these elements that really make it stand out brian what about you what are your thoughts on ex machina uh yeah you guys covered a lot of it it was uh definitely a movie where you know any movie like this the first time through is always exciting because you don't know what's coming right but then the test of a movie like that is okay how does it feel then watching it the next time and the next time, um, you know, Knives Out's a great example of a movie. The last, last time Sage was here, just like a movie that's just really fun and entertaining and doesn't require you to like not know what's going to happen in order to enjoy it. So, yeah, I loved it the first time. And then then there was like a little bit of a dip, like the second and third time where I watched it, where I still really appreciated it. But 
it's a, it's a sort of slow methodical movie. So it's not a movie that is like boom, 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 pace, 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 like doing stuff. But then it also, you know, it sets this mood and you have like the score and everything just like it puts and, and just like the visuals, the cinematography, everything just sort of puts you into this mood. So I think like one of the times I watched the movie, like maybe the third time I was like, I'm not having a blast watching this movie, but I really appreciate it. I really like it. And then, then it's sort of like, clicked where now I know exactly what I'm getting into every time I watch it. So now I can just sort of be like, okay, it's not going to be a super exciting movie where things are like happening every two seconds. I am just going to sort of go into this like dreamlike mood for two hours and really appreciate the experience. And again, the dip was like, you know, it went from a a 9.5 to a 9.2 or something like, and, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, and then, yeah, so now I can just watch it and really appreciate it. And, and like you guys were saying, like really start unpacking it and and thinking about what it's really talking about in the subtext and beneath the surface and that it's not just a movie. It's sort of the interesting thing about Alex Garland is he does this high concept stuff where I've said this before, 28 days later, I was like, Oh, it's a monster movie. And then halfway through the movie, I'm like, Oh no, it's a movie about, people and like what people are willing to do uh and or what people will do when they're given power and that kind of thing and then sunshine i was like ooh, this is going to be a cool like character study about what people are like and there's like no it's just a monster movie uh so (laughs) there's always this like he's sort of doing this thing where it's like there's the the external thing and then the thing that it's really about and i'm not always 100 percent on board with how he weaves those two things together but i think ex machina is a really good example of of that being done really well where the external thing is also speaking to the internal thing and the the way that they work together and allow it to be open for interpretation like it all just sort of works really really uh cleanly yeah i i remember sitting in the theater and also you know thinking about this being alex garland's first directing role right and just being wowed by the direction and you know we keep talking about the mood that it puts you in so much of the filmmaking is obviously doing that so the score which has been mentioned the production design i feel mm-hmm. like it's such a big character in this movie of just like the place that nathan lives and how the rock comes into his you know the it's kind of mixing yeah. the organic with the yeah. clean aesthetic and mm-hmm. the recessed it, lighting right the, yeah the like <laughs> the nice glow i feel like it 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 hit my tickle spot uh, of being uh, Fincher esque, right? Where it's like it's yeah. it's intentional and like clean and pretty precise, but also there's like a life and like a fuzziness to it, and it's just it's a little bit more alive, and you don't know exactly what's going to happen as the camera's moving, or or even how it frames so many of the conversations. It's like it's not doing the standard you know shot versus shot where the person on the left is on the left side of the frame, and then you cut to the person on the right, they're on the right. Like everybody is kind of framed like a little bit wrong and a little bit off. Mm. So there's just all these techniques happening throughout via the filmmaking that are helping to make that creepiness, that unsettled feeling, even when on the surface, especially at the very beginning, there's nothing that should be scary objectively about Mm -hmm. what's happening you still get this feeling of like why do i think caleb is walking into doom there's a tension right now yeah 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 even things like the um you know the door being locked and the room having no windows and stuff like that there's just always a sort of feeling of like some there's a little bit of unease going on here real quick while we're talking about first impressions one thing i wanted to mention was i think i mentioned this before on the podcast that I wondered if Nathan was an AI the first time I watched the movie. Cause I was like, I, I had this when I watched the get out trailer and I won't spoil get out, but I, I was like the trailer heavy, heavily suggests that this thing is going on, 
which means then if that thing is going on, then the only twist left is if this other thing is actually going on too. And then sure enough, that's what happened to get out. And I was like, okay. Mm. So I think with, with Ex Machina, it's like right off the bat, they're like, look, this is an AI period. Like there's no, there's no nothing behind the being hidden from you there. So then I was like, oh, we, there's this guy who's like, I'm so drunk and I work out and like, <laughs> dude, you know? So I was like, oh, that would be like the fun thing is if you have, we have this AI who, talks like an AI and hello, how are you? And then we have the other AI who just is like as human as could possibly be. So that was a fun little, like I was like trying to, trying to find the thing behind the thing, you know, and it, and turns out the thing behind the thing was something else, which we will get into. <laughs> it sounds like Michael's you're trying to outsmart uh, Knives Out. You know? Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Like, there's gotta be something else going on here. <laughs> well, it's also the first thing Nathan says is like, oh, I can't eat because I'm hungover. And I was like, he, he doesn't want to eat or he can't eat. <laughs> That's hilarious. On the topic of the yeah, the environment and the setting, I love the introduction to Nathan's compound, whatever that is, where mm-hmm. is this lingering shot on the, essentially looks like Hal from 2001 A Space Odyssey, where he puts his key card to the door. It's blue. Mm. And then the door slowly closes across Caleb's silhouette and then turns red, like literally just Hal from 2001, which I think <laughs> is a wonderful nod. Right. Immediately, like the visuals are saying he just walked into a trap and now he's trapped in here. Yeah. Which I think is just it's great. Like as an audience, when you're told like this is how the door locks, you know, like you know that it's going to be a problem later. Right. So you just that's, you know, you're you're putting a little, you know, gun on the mantelpiece. Right. (laughs) Um, Right. Very efficient moment there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I feel like one of the things I like about Ex Machina is, you know, like you're saying, Sage, it puts these little guns on the mantelpiece, but it does it so early. And while I'm really interested in other stuff that it doesn't jump out at me the same as it does in some other movies where it's like, you know, I get, you know, the store's closing and it's ominous, but I don't know why. Like, I, I don't have in this moment a reason to imagine why this is going to be bad. Mm-hmm. So I feel like they managed to front load a lot of that or hide it while I'm more interested in the the curiosity of what is he doing here and, and what is going on. And that's one of the things I talk about in the videos that, you know, in the script, when Caleb is talking to the pilot on the way there, there's a lot more exposition about like Caleb and the pilot talking about this is Nathan and he runs this company and I won a contest and I'm going to come here and I'm going to spend a week with him and we're going to do the da da da. That's fascinating from mm-hmm. from like an editing perspective because there's yeah. like nothing in that conversation and it's totally unnecessary. Right. Right. It's literally just the last two lines of that scene make it into it. And and kind of throughout the movie, you know, I think this is a really fun movie for people that like to study screenwriting and filmmaking to watch the movie while reading the screenplay because there are little edits that make things um, either more clear or slightly more ambiguous. So like one of the things that uh, Ava says at one point is when Caleb's asking her, uh, you know, you've never been outside of this room. She has a line that's like, well, I think I was created in another room. And it's kind of like the womb, like the relationship you must have with like the womb and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, okay, I'm, I didn't need that in the movie. Like, mm-hmm. I'm glad that's gone. And so there's little things like that or questions that 
are answered in the script, like when Ava asks, I want to be with you. Do you want to be with me, Caleb? The movie just cuts, so we mm-hmm. don't get to see his, mm. his uh, reaction. And then there's also like some rearranging. And I think one of the biggest rearranging things that happened was in the screenplay, the scene where Nathan takes Caleb into his lab and is like, this is how I made Ava. Like, here's her brain. And this is like all the mechanics and really showing off, you know, how robotic she is. That in the script happens a few scenes earlier than it does in the movie. And I think that's a really interesting rearrangement because the way I read into that anyway is that the purpose of that scene is to kind of remind Caleb that Ava is a robot. And there's even a line in that scene that got cut, which Nathan basically spells that out. Like, I brought you here to remind you she is just a gray box, like just hydraulics and blah, 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 which is part of the mind games that Nathan is constantly doing mm-hmm. with Caleb. Mm-hmm. But I think by moving it later in the movie, it's almost challenging Caleb and the audience even more because now Caleb is even more attached to Ava. And so it's like an even bigger challenge of like, yes, you're like kind of falling for her. And now I'm going to give you a tour of how she's not a real person as like a greater test of that. So I just thought that was really interesting. Right. And I think it's also moved like right to the beginning of act two, where I think the the act break, if I have identified it correctly, is Ava, like the power going out and her saying, don't trust him, you know, like don't trust anything he says. And then it's like, here's how I made this robot who you should not have any feelings towards, you know? So now you're suddenly like, okay, this is weird. And something I had noticed, my girlfriend actually pointed out to me with the line you were talking about, Michael, of, um, oh, you've never been outside. The way that that's communicated to the audience is he sees the picture of a window with trees in it and these huge, heavy black frames on the side. So you're seeing the walls of the house. It's not just you're seeing the tree. You're seeing the tree within these walls, basically. And then it's not even until a later shot in the background of the wide, basically, where it's like you see that that is in the corner of her room kind of thing. So it's just it's one of those things that just really the more you watch the movie, the more you realize things that are being subtextual or being communicated to the audience in a way where you don't quite get the entire thing at the, the first time through. But then when you watch it again you're like oh yeah there's that little clue there and there's that little thing there and that's always just fun to rewatch movies like that yeah sage i'm kind of curious for you because i for me i know that my experience is i start off the movie kind of on team caleb and with him and i'm like nathan's a dick like you got this caleb it'll be okay Mm -hmm. and then around the middle of the movie i kind of disassociate from caleb and kind of by the end i find myself on team robot personally which maybe says a lot about me and my relationship with humanity yeah uh, but i'm <laughs> i'm curious yeah for for you sage is there a changing of of allegiances or how what's your experience like as the movie plays out yeah i think this is like the most clever trick in the movie is to give you like the milk toast white man main character you know he could be frodo baggins he could be yeah <laughs> right um luke skywalker yeah yeah you know yeah like he feel and he you know he's kind of unsure of himself and you know he's got all of those like little things that make an audience that get an audience endeared to a character we're seeing the whole thing from his perspective so of course he's our guy like obvious choice like the movie wants you wants you to identify with him and i think like up until for me, it's it's an important point is when he finds out about Kyoko being a robot, because mm-hmm. then things should shift for him in a way that they don't really. Mm-hmm. And that's why he's not a good guy. Like up until that, that point, you're thinking, you know, he wants to save Ava. He's romantically into her, but he's also going to do the good thing in this situation, which is get her out of there. Right. But you don't know about 
Kyoko and he doesn't know about Kyoko. And once he does, then he should want to save her too. Right. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't do like it's it's never part of the plan for him to to help her or if there's any other robots in there. Right. So for me, that's the the reason that at the end when she leaves him, like that's why he's being left behind or why he deserves to to be left behind there because Nathan controlled Ava, her entire existence. And really, that's what Caleb wanted to do, too. Right. Like he right. wanted to have, you know, a gentler kind of uh, control over her in a in a romantic way. Right. It's that scene with uh, with Kyoko, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. I was thinking recently about Fight Club. because I was talking to somebody about it and how it sort of has become this movie where the movie itself is like negatively judged because of the philosophies people think it's espousing when it's like the sort of thing that that movie is doing is trying to make you think Tyler is this like smart, cool, no, you know, knows everything kind of guy because it's then going to throw that back in your face and, and sort of, you know, ultimately have that character have to be destroyed in order to, you know, in order for the protagonist to survive spoiler. Um, but, <laughs> but I think that like ex machina is doing a similar thing here. Like you're saying Sage, it's sort of like, here is your hero. He's a good guy. So of course this movie has to be about the hero getting the girl right. Who needs saving from, from the guy and like, they're going to run away together and that kind of thing. And you sort of don't see the, the little things that are happening throughout. And when you actually look for those things it's it's really interesting what things are there like right at the beginning he says that's the history of gods like basically saying you know you're a god which is funny because later nathan has a throwaway line that says like it's promethean man where it's like right like literally stealing fire from the gods you know causes your own downfall like you are you're writing your own ending here buddy but then i think you hit the nail on the head caleb about the kyoko thing even if kyoko is not in this movie is Caleb going to go through these lengths to save someone that he is not attracted to? Right. Either a non-human robot or a male robot or someone he just doesn't deem as attractive. Again, it's all subtext. That's never stated out loud. It's never even stated out loud. Caleb is like, hopefully I'll, we'll have a relationship or what, you know what I mean? It's just sort of, we get it. We understand exactly why he wants to save Ava. And I think ultimately that is why he deserves his downfall, but it, the movie is very purposefully trying to trying to bury that stuff. It's trying to make it just below the surface so that you are realizing it the second, third time you're watching it. You're like, oh yeah, I feel like an asshole now for being on his side the first time I was watching because I didn't catch those little red flags that were being very subtly planted there. That is what I love about the movie though. It 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 has the confidence not to broadcast any kind of like really overt moral virtue kind of message with the right. ending. The ending is very ambiguous in a lot of ways. Like the, you know, the first time I viewed it, I was reading it completely. Yeah. Through that. This is about AI perspective. And through that AI perspective, I was reading it as, oh my God, stupid humans. You thought machines were mammals and like form bonds the way you do and have these like emotional triggers the way you do. Uh-uh. It's just reading your fucking face and it's making... <laughs> the expressions back at you and you're being fooled because you're a stupid monkey and her walking out so kind of confidently and just like just a little look back at him is just revealing like oh this whole time you thought you were dealing with another human you were not at all of course this is not a human but that's complicated because as she's walking out through the kind of like lobby of the building she smiles to herself mm -hmm. and like has this delight 
in being free, not while she's being watched, not while she's being recorded. So it's not part of her trying to fool anybody. She also has private moments with Kyoko near the end where she's like giving her some kind of, I don't know, like secret message, but there's like an intimacy and like a caring there. So the movie's really complicated. It it doesn't let you just read it in, in one simplistic way. It kind of forced me to go back and rewatch it and like, okay, so it's not just that she's a one dimensional cold machine that never really cared for anything. She may just not care for humans or maybe for men or, right. or, or these men who obviously we're not going to watch out for the well-being as you were pointing out sage of all her fellow robots <laughs> he's just following his own desires ultimately but yeah but i just but i love that the movie doesn't like force me to interpret it in any which way you know it, it just gives you all those pieces to put together yourself and, and it was fun to watch it as just an ai movie and just uh oh wow humans are dumb and they got fooled by the day by an ai and then it's even more rewarding to go back and see it through the gender dynamics and the male fantasy dynamics. That's a really interesting part of this is like you've got Nathan's fantasies, Caleb's fantasies, all being kind of projected onto these machines. So much to talk about with all that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and just how the, like the movie is playing, like is banking on the audience having those same feelings too, right? right. Like the the fact that you want Caleb to run away with uh with Ava at the end and you know the hero succeed over the over the villain. Like that's the movie's building you up to to want that. And then it just like, you know, takes a, a sledgehammer to that at the end. Um, <laughs> it kind of reminds me a little bit of the prestige, which you know I've talked about. I really like the prestige tells you you know, I guess I'll try to do this as spoiler free as possible for the prestige. You know, tells you it's doing a magic trick and then pulls off the magic trick. Or that was my experience right. of it as like mm. being told as audience, there's a magic trick happening and it's still working on me. I do kind of remember that being my first experience with Ex Machina is being weary for Caleb and be like, I don't know that you should be trusting this robot, but like I'm kind of in love with this robot too. And like kind of falling in love because you know the movie is using all these things and trading on all of the things is going to activate the biology of at least the straight male viewers and and stuff like that. And the performances are great. And I want to talk about that. But I think that's why the ending, why I also love it so much is because it was very unsettling, almost this realization of, yeah, I probably would have ended up dead also somehow. (laughs) These robots would have been able to manipulate me because this movie just did in two hours. Right. And I think that is... (laughs) I, I like the the meta aspect of it that's happening on, on top of everything else like we're talking about. I think it's also using the understood pop culture thing of artificial intelligence, where if you look at the movies of the past you know 30 years, it's like you have machines like 3PO or WALL-E who are basically just like, this is a, this is a sentient being with emotions and period, right? Like there is right. no like, what do you mean how I feel? That does not compute. It's just like they are scared and they are worried and they are all these things. And then at the other end, you have Terminator or the Matrix or something where it's like the machine is literally just going to do everything it needs to do to survive. It will find out where John Connor is and then kill you. It will hook you up to a program just to so you can be a battery, all that kind of stuff. Like there is, it's just, we are going to use you as we need to use you to get the thing that we want. And I think what's genius about Ava is that she is presented as a 3PO as sort of a Mm -hmm. like, oh, I have wants and desires and and maybe I want to be with you and I want to go outside and this kind of thing. But then the the revelation at the end is no, this machine was really just using the humans around it to 
to get the thing that it wanted. But as you point out, Alex, it's not that simple because like they both Ava and Kyoko clearly have desires and even the uh the other robots in like the footage and stuff the like previous iterations yeah. right like they are mm-hmm. they are angry and they and they have things that they want and it's very unclear what exactly ava wants and whether she ever had any sort of empathy or, or some version of that emotion towards caleb it is pretty clear by the end that like her her main goal was just to escape and to do whatever needed to happen to make that happen, regardless of the cost of uh, of that happening. To me, it's it's saying like that's okay, right? <laughs> like like she is in completely in the right to be to be doing that, right? If you take like the AI component out of it and just read this as you know, this is a woman being held in a house <laughs> right. against her own mm-hmm. will and tested to find out if she should be killed or not (laughs) right right yeah death is hanging over her head constantly and the only person that can help her is someone who wants to marry her right and Mm. the only ticket she's being presented out of that is that right so the movie's saying like in in that scenario like you you have every right to manipulate or to not you know show compassion for for that person you know like I think it's it's saying like you don't have to care about people who are oppressing you, right? And wh- whether they are like the overt oppressors like Nathan right. or the the people who are just kind of going along with the system like uh, mm. like Caleb. Yeah, I actually was thinking about Promising Young Woman the last time I watched um, Ex Machina because it's like it's sort of set up to be like, well, here are the clear bad guys. And then the movie is like, but also the people who are okay with what they're doing are also the bad guys. And yeah. you need to be paying attention to that too in in life. The complexity of all of that, again, is something I really like where, you know, this time I was watching it and trying to keep in mind, like you were saying, Alex, like once Ava is free, she is happy. She does have these emotions. The moment that she shares with Kyoko does seem to be empathy. Like when she first sees Kyoko, she's curious about her in a way that is different than when she was you know, curious about Caleb, it feels. To me, it, it does seem like the movie is saying there is empathy and caring and an internal life happening here. And so I was kind of curious, is there a moment that I could find where Ava decides she's going to manipulate Caleb and leave him behind? Or is that there from the word go? And I think each time I watch it, I I come up with a different conclusion. Mm. If there's a change, it might be during the kind of sequence where Caleb is talking about Mary and the black and white room story. Uh, Yeah. Where he's, you know, kind of the point that last line of the story is sort of like the AI is Mary in the black and white room. The human is Mary when she walks out. And that's obviously visually a thing that's happening in the movie is like Ava's walking out of the box and walking into nature and being free. And so like, is that symbolizing her becoming human? But if like the look on Ava's face is really fascinating during that whole scene where it's like she's clearly like really deeply processing or, or at least trying to signal that she's deeply processing all these things. And I could see there being room in that of like, if Caleb is, you know, this is a way to manipulate Caleb but also is this this is maybe a thing that humans are aware of and yet they do these things and so maybe this person is not worth saving i don't know that felt like a turning point for me with her character that scene always strikes me as well cuz there is something on her face where she just seems like kind of disturbed by the story and i think in some ways the story is almost it's like a fable asserting human supremacy mm. mm-hmm. because it's so definitive it's like no 
like AI is the black and white room. It wasn't a story about how like AI can learn how to see color or like how AI could eventually see color one day. It's just AI is a black and white box and it will never be human. That is plausible to me as a turning point for her of, okay, Caleb actually doesn't really believe I'm real either. He wants a robot wife, but Mm. he's not necessarily in this because he sees my humanity or my kind of fullness as a consciousness. Right. Because he just compared me to a box and said I was not going to be able to see color ever, maybe. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you sold me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the the real question is, do we think Ava has compassion at all? Because if not, then there's no reason for her to ever even consider having Caleb be free at the end, right? Like if it's literally just about what she wants, then it's like, there would be no turning point from, oh, I'm going to escape, but I'm going to take you with me versus I'm going to escape and I don't care if you're alive or dead. That raises the entire question of who is Ava at all, which obviously this is unanswerable because the movie purposefully doesn't really tell you that. But it's like just saying that there's a turning point in her decision suggests that there is a humanity right. like there in the first place, you know, which again, the movie does show you by her clearly having some sort of the emotional reaction to things. So the real Turing test was on Caleb. It's on us. <laughs> well, yeah, I was, yeah. Yeah, it's on the audience, too. Like, I th- I think yeah, you can the- apply it to like every character. The real Turing test was. <laughs> right. You know. Because there's all these complexities to it, because she's not just one way or the other. She's not just a cold robot when she's alone. It's impossible to read. Like the movie almost kind of raises the, the point that it's impossible for one organism to like definitively tell another organism you are conscious or not you know like how could we ever decide that Mm -hmm. i have no proof that any of you are conscious (laughs) but like you guys could just all be robots sent i mean i'm barely passing anyway right right. or brains in a jar It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. On that topic of how can any of us point to something else and definitively say this is conscious or not conscious, there's so much work being done in the first meetings with Ava to use music to set a certain tone with like how we feel about her. The composers talked about uh, Alex Garland really pushed them to create a theme for Ava that was almost childlike and had like this nursery, these gentle chimes, kind of Mm. innocence, curiosity, not edgy, not like creepy, but just kind of like a, I guess it is kind of creepy, but it is, it's like a lullaby nursery kind of gentle chimes. You have that plus you're showing this robot explicitly. You're like very clearly showing her body, not ever hiding it. And yet like something about the design of the visual effects, the design of the costume visual effects components, and then Alicia Vikander's performance all adds up to this like magical combo where I've never watched this movie and had there be like a split where it's like, oh, in this first scene, I was just noticing how she's a robot. But then like as the movie went on, I started to feel like she was a person and like became more like a person. Somehow from the very first scene, it's all at once yes i can see she's a, she's a robot but she's like undeniably like a person right away mm-hmm. and i think alex garland was very 
conscious of trying to make that happen where it's like we're not going to give you creepy robot music when her robot figure steps into like a silhouette frame it's going to be this gentle curious childlike innocence music and the fact that the face i love the design of her face where it's like this it's skin on top of the mesh mm-hmm. but it's but it's like but it's like a perfect human face it's all just really brilliant it's like the, the right. parts <laughs> they chose to make robot and not robot all feels so well considered to give you the like all at once experience like there's never a robot part of the movie and a person part of the movie right ava is always all the things at once somehow right and, and just the the parts of her that they decided to show the interior like mechanisms mm-hmm. to, so that it wouldn't kind of imply that she's like wearing clothing right like the the gray areas so right she's not entirely quote-unquote naked you know like, right. yeah she has like a top on and, and like you know shorts almost right <laughs> interesting thing about her design is that when she is let's say unclothed we still see real hands feet and face which is the sort of what you see on most clothed people it's like right that's usually what you actually see but then when she is fully clothed you still see the back of her neck you still see those little things that are sort of like so it's always it's always operating in this middle space the other thing that's doing that is the cinematography the way that the interview sessions especially are shot it's doing kind of the thing michael you pointed out in the portrait of a lady on fire video where is the pov of the camera so it starts out we're on caleb's side of the glass looking in on ava but then as ava starts to sort of gain control of the situation. Now we're in the room with her looking out at Caleb. Then there's like one shot where it's completely from the side and they're both absent, like the middle of the glass Mm. is right down the middle of the frame, but you can see Caleb's reflection, but you can't see her, you know, like all that stuff. So it's sort of doing that thing where it is inviting us more and more into Ava's world as the movie goes on. And the first time that we are in the room kind of alone, quote unquote, with Ava is when she's kind of getting dressed up yeah. To show Caleb, I just clocked that was the first time we're with Ava. The camera's very close to her, and it's kind of like a private moment or the most private moment that we've seen with her, where we're watching her do something where, in theory, Caleb's not supposed to be looking. But even if he is, we're not seeing her from his perspective right. or like with her. Yeah, it's something that uh, Trisha's pointed out before is like you can't show the bad guy being bad by himself. Right. Where it's like he's in a room, like acting the way that he normally acts. Because if you later reveal he's this person instead, it's like, well, then why did we see him? But I think that that scene is our first glimpse of Ava not performing, that she genuinely is feeling this fabric and deciding which thing to wear. And again, it's showing us that like there is more to this this character, even by the end of the movie where we're like, oh, she was actually just doing this. It's like, no, but there there is part of her that is just genuinely like, I'm really going excited to go stand on a street corner and just look at people because that is actually my desire. Right. Yeah, I found like that part of her character, I think, is really interesting. The fact that one of the things that she feels so uncomfortable with throughout the movie is the fact that she's always being observed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and just what you're talking about that, like, there's those few segments where like, you know, she's off, you know, maybe when she's put, putting the clothing on, maybe she's not being seen there. So like the fact that like her main desire is to be the observer, mm-hmm. right? Like in the, the traffic intersection, just going back to like what we were saying about like, is she human? Does she have compassion? You, you know, the people who she knows to be human are the ones who can see other people. Right. Mm. So like the fact that she defines that as like, that's what she wants kind of like to me hints that like she wants to be human. She wants to do the thing that she's seen humans have the ability to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's also interesting just as more evidence of like Caleb is a dick 
like I've always been bothered by, you know, she asks him to close his eyes and then he doesn't do it. Mm. He just like immediately opens it and keeps watching. It's like, give a robot some privacy, you know? <laughs> I mean, it, it shows how he doesn't, he's not going to believe she's really worthy of, you know, that kind of respect yet. You know, like mm. she's not proven herself to him as like an actual, like, you know, human being that you would close your eyes if she asked you to because she's still kind of an object. She's still not something that you need to listen to because yeah. you're here to watch her. But that scene is really interesting where she's getting dressed. That always actually bumped for me, probably because it, it disrupted my like first reading of the movie, which is, aha, I love it. She just used your human emotions against you. Of course, AI isn't human. It has different... It's, it's, it's like an alien. It has different... Mm -hmm emotions and desires than a human would i love all it took was it mimicking you to, to totally fool you but that scene complicates all that because just like her laughing as she walks outside like she seems to have this like genuine almost like nostalgia kind of emotion as she chooses her wig or her dress there's something very human about all of it and it kind of bothered me on a second viewing because i was like wait a minute i thought i had this movie figured out and like what does this mean and is she performing is there a camera still watching her if there is garland isn't showing us that there is so i've always felt like uneasy about that part of the movie because it's like yeah what is this telling us about her that she has all this kind of care and almost i don't know delicacy about getting dressed in these like human clothes but maybe there is just a desire to be out there to be human to be the observer like you said sage and so she does have an emotional attachment to these things that will help her pass i guess hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's it's weird because in the script there is uh, a couple lines there that were cut where ava says you know it took me a long time to select these clothes i tried different colors and styles and trying to anticipate your reaction do you think the choices suit me do they bring out my best features in uh, the script it it is played more for like this is part of my seduction of you yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting that you know removing that does kind of then give Ava maybe a little bit more of that her own inner life inner world did she choose these clothes for her so yeah, it's just interesting. She even has like a mood board, you know, she's like a mood board with <laughs> right. like, with right. a, like the haircut the she chooses. The, uh -huh. There's an intersection on her mood board, Oh, is it? which is intersection. Oh, I didn't, oh, I didn't collect that. Yeah. While we're sort of talking about performances, first of all, you know, Alicia Vikander is amazing. Yeah. All the performances in this movie have these tiny micro expressions that all the actors have that convey so much subtext and meaning and this kind of inner life that's happening beneath what they're saying on the surface you know obviously you know she was trained as a, a dancer and so the way she moves and like all of that like does so much to create the kind of magic that is ava i'm always blown away by oscar isaac's performance mm -hmm. where iconic yeah <laughs> it could have been just like a run-of-the-mill you know douchey bro from silicon valley but there's i feel like there's so much happening in his head and you know, he's a dick to Caleb, but even when he's a dick to Caleb, there are these moments where he just kind of like turns and looks off and feels like he's pondering like the weight of existence. A reading that I've heard that I think is interesting is like, does Nathan know deep down that this is going to end with his demise? Like, is that why he's mm. drunk all the time and right. sealed himself away from all of humanity as he knows that like success will mean he will end and it's just a matter of when? What do you guys think about that? Sage, what do you make of Nathan? I mean, there is that whole monologue that they have 
when they're outside and it's like very windy and, and cold mm-hmm. and he's and he's talking about uh like how the, you know the robots are it, it, we're all headed for extinction so he does have like like he has that nihilism about him that's under the mask of you know wacky billionaire mentor <laughs> that, that he's like this face that he's putting on for for caleb when like really he's like i mean you know he's a he's a ridiculous pervert you know <laughs> he's the guy who invents ai and all he wants to do is like make sex bots in the woods you know like he's like insane right and a fantastic character like just <laughs> just really really compelling it was fun watching some interviews with oscar isaac about nathan because he was actually interpreting some of the character as half the time he's putting on a show for caleb because this is an experiment in which you know can an ai convince the subject to like help them escape from the evil captor in some ways oscar isaac is the hot assistant like he's He's the distraction. You can watch the movie and wonder when is he exaggerating himself? He's obviously not a good person, but there's there's are some scenes where he's like really going hard and rubbing it in. You know, when Kyoko spills the wine, he's really making right. it clear what an asshole he is. And Oscar Isaac was actually putting forth like he thinks the character is actually taking advantage of those moments to show what an evil person he is to fool Caleb. He, he's, he's basically assisting Ava in her plan. Right. That's why his performance is so interesting and so layered. I always feel unmoored watching him in this movie because I, it, it's hard. He's very unpredictable and you don't know what's going to happen next because you do feel like he's the, yeah, he's kind of this depressed billionaire savant who's also just totally like a perverted sex bot owner with dolls hanging in his closet. Like he's so many things at once. And man, Oscar Isaac just sinks his teeth in and goes for it. <laughs> But also like that reading of him as like as just putting like putting on the asshole persona so that Caleb cares more for Ava. Yeah, right, right. But like if he's doing that, then like, why is he doing that? Right. Like there's the the, the AI answer of like, that'll really prove that she's an AI. But like, really, he kind of wants someone else to have fallen in love with his creations the way he has. Right. Like he's Mm. kind of like that alone in the emotional place that he is. When he's in his worst moments in the movie, I don't think it's the thing you can entirely put on if you're a nice person. I think he has a lot of darkness in him and he's like letting it loose almost. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, he's a very like, you know, I think Alex Garland said in an interview, like Nathan is a very damaged man mm-hmm. and he's got all these contradictions. And I, yeah, I, I don't think if he's putting anything on, I don't think it's like he's secretly this amazingly wonderful person. I mean, we we see the footage of how he treated each iteration of the AI. He's not a good person. Yeah, it's interesting thinking about the test. Also, that's a meta thing I have running in my brain. Is like, is this a very scientific good test? It feels like you're really influencing <laughs> the test by. I mean, they bring up textually, like you know, the magician's hot assistant, blah blah blah. Clearly. As they essentially reveal, Ava was designed specifically to manipulate Caleb. So like, does that water down the test? But there are even these moments where, to your point, Sage, of, you know, Nathan kind of wanting the validation from Caleb, where, you know, the first time... How do you feel? Right, like, I don't want an analytical answer. Just give me, like, how do you feel right now? And Caleb's like, she's amazing. And he's like, yes, that is a good answer. Like, give me more of those answers. Right. Right, because if you feel that way, then it's okay that I feel that Right. Right. Right, yeah. There's And, like, even this time I was wondering, is this the first person that's done this test? Like, is he crazy enough that maybe... This has happened before and he dispensed of the body with somebody mm-hmm. else. You know, he jokes about killing the contractors and like clearly a joke. 
question mark like that's part of the whole thing yeah his character is really fascinating and just like that these are the representatives of humanity that are here at the creation of this new thing is also just such a a statement about this kind of humanity anyway men isolated with too much power and time (laughs) that's exactly how it's going to happen well it's a statement about who is creating technology in our society right now (laughs) which is which is scary yeah. yeah, Nathan Nathan is a very good representation of a modern billionaire. <laughs> right. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Cool. Well, why don't we move to lessons? So what lessons are we going to take away from Ex Machina? Sage, as guest, you get to choose. Do you want to go first or do you want to go last? I'll go last. Okay, cool. Alex, do you want to start us off? Sure. We talked about both with this movie and Annihilation, the endings pack such a punch. Annihilation is just an amazing, unique set piece I've never seen before, you know, that that kind of doppelganger scene. But in this movie, I think the ending packs such a punch partially because the movie, it knows its scale. You know, it knows this is not a big budget movie. It's trying to do a lot with a little and the movie doesn't overpromise. You're not expecting a big whiz bang finale for this movie because it has been such a simple, yeah, almost like stage play setup. And but because of that, you can really have this amazing impact with a very simple climax. There's that very simple scene in a, just in a hallway where, you know, like it's the biggest deal in the world to see like the video footage of Ava in the hallway. Nathan seeing that, oh my God, like getting the dumbbell like bar, mm-hmm. the way that finale plays out, you know, the way every, every line has so much weight when she asks, will you ever let me go? And he says, yes. And her face makes the expression that is lie. <laughs> right. And then she just like runs at him starting off slow. And then mm. like, you know, just like a good like machine just like accelerates as she goes very smooth in her operation. And then, you know, when Kyoko comes over with a knife, it's a very like surgical, you know, targeted, smooth stabbing. You know, there's no human passion here. It's just a smooth, gentle stabbing. But all those moments have so much impact. I think it just is a great lesson in you don't need to go overboard with like some third act finale. I think there's a there's a feeling sometimes where it's like, for me as a writer too, like I think, oh man, my third act's got to be big. It's got to like go way over the top and really pay off, you know, this whole movie. And I think this film shows if you are paying off like all the dominoes that have been set up, the finale in its scale can be small and really impactful. Mm-hmm. Just very simple in its mechanics, but feeling absolutely explosive. So this is a good movie to study if you're if you're doing a first feature or you're trying to figure out like a simple premise with a few people in rooms. Like this is how to do it. It helps to have an amazing visual effects uh, team to to make your robot look that good. But mm-hmm. besides that, it's a very simple, low budget movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing that how good this movie looks for for its budget. Like, I mean, the visual effects, we barely talked about them, but it's some of the best I've ever seen in, in a low budget sci fi film. Yeah, I feel like it's the example of taking the right approach with visual effects and like knowing the scale 
and doing lots of planning to know exactly what you need to achieve and yes. let the smart people figure out the smart right way to do it so that it will look good in the way you want it to look good. And yeah, it's very much not a like, we'll shoot some stuff and then we'll figure it out later. I just appreciate that aspect of it also. It's a very... yeah. Yeah, approached with intention and intelligence and an openness to collaboration, which is the thing that Alex Garland talks about also of like, I want to be, you know, the dumbest person in the room and work mm -hmm. with really smart people that know what they're doing. I think that shows for sure. And one thing they talked about as well in the behind the scenes is just how one of the reasons special effects, the visual effects feel so natural and just there is the way they're shot it's, it's like you know ava's body is oftentimes incidental like it's just like it's in the frame because there's a scene with a person talking to another person but it's not like every shot of her body is like whoa look at how amazing the visual effect is here's like the money shot most of the time it's just incidental and we just get used to it and it's just a good lesson thinking about visual effects sometimes when you're going for that money shot it loses its power, actually. It's like visual effects are more powerful if they're just incidentally there and not right. the attention is not being called to them constantly. And there's real elements that they shot on the set. And so you're like right. marrying things with the real things, which exactly is, is better. Yeah. Parts of her body are actually the suit she was wearing. You know, it's, right. it's not all visual effects. Yeah. Cool. So two lessons there about writing and yeah. visual effects. <laughs> uh, Brian, what about you? I think this movie is a great example of how to move your inciting incident to the front of the movie, basically. Mm. And what I mean by that is what the traditional inciting incident would be. Obviously, this movie has its own inciting incident in in uh, Caleb meeting Ava. But it's like, we don't need to see a day in the life of Caleb and <laughs> right. what he has for breakfast and what his relationship with his mom is and this kind of thing, you know? And I think there are two reasons. One is a general reason. One is a reason specific to this movie. Why we don't need that. One is we don't need it period. Like it's just, it's a thing you can communicate later in the movie. If we really needed to know Caleb's backstory, we could learn that through dialogue or flashback or whatever throughout the movie. So any movie you could just, whatever your inciting incident is, you could just put it in minute two of the movie and then do everything else from there. But a lot of movies, you don't want to do it that way. That's, that, that's not what we want, but why I think it works really well for this movie specifically is we want a little distance from Caleb because it's walking this fine line of you want to be on his side, but also you want, when he is left there at the end, you want to kind of cheer, right? <laughs> like, so if we had 15 minutes to like fall in love with this character before this movie starts, then we'd be like, wait, why does he get punished at the end? But instead we just have a blank slate that we're basically assuming is a good guy the movie sort of goes back and forth with whether or not he's a good guy in terms of like what it's actually going to tell us. It's going to tell us, okay, he can be a little maybe okay too okay with what Nathan's doing. And he can be maybe a little, a little bit of hubris there with like, you're a God now, but also like he has, seems to have a good intentions and da da da. So all of that is achieved by, we don't even know who Caleb is. We know he's a guy sitting in a computer who won something now he's on a helicopter and wandering into this brand new place. Uh, whereas most movies, again, we would spend time with Caleb first. That lets Caleb sort of be this blank slate for both Alex Garland and us as the audience to never be quite sure how we feel about him uh, the first time through. Once you've seen the movie a couple of times, then you can start to be like, no, he's, he really just deserves to be left there at the end, as we've talked about. But the first time through, it's like you really want to walk that line of am I on his side? Am I not? And by just not really giving him you know, much backstory, the movie's able to pull that off. 
and also just like who's the protagonist you know it is nice of course it's nice if, if we had that opening like day in the life of caleb it would be really saying he's the protagonist and it's just nice it's nice to not have that right you don't meet ava till the midpoint or something like that right, right. like that it's an entirely different movie but that's not what this movie is take the first three chapters of save the cat just throw them in the garbage <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, and I feel like for this movie, it also, on top of everything you're saying, you know, it gets us to the like, you know, the locked contained thriller part sooner, which is always fun. And part of the ambiguity is this sort of, you know, Alex Garland is aware that in this story, people are going to be, well, is Caleb a robot or like is Nathan? Mm. Like, am I a robot? Like, there's going to be all that wondering. (laughs) And so the less we know about Caleb, you know, all we have, and he sort of purposely gave him this vague backstory of like i grew up i didn't have parents no siblings like i was in a hospital for a long time and then i and there are scars on his back mm-hmm. from this thing but like could it have been because he's on so right, right it's like a little bit of like misdirection happening so it's it's doing all of those things and yeah i agree I, that's why i love the opening of this movie is because i forget it's even in the movie mm-hmm. like right. until i watch it kind of ties in with my lesson which is essentially the same lesson that i I made the video about uh, it was fun going back and watching the video and being like, I agree with the things you were thinking back then, Michael, like some of them anyway. I really like the way this movie handles revealing information to the audience. Mm-hmm. And I think I am someone who gravitates to stories that are told from a singular perspective. And certainly when I write, I tend to default to protagonist is in every scene and the audience only knows as much as the protagonist knows. And that's kind of like my safe spot. And it can bother me sometimes in movies where there is a more omniscient point of view that feels convenient, where it's like, okay, halfway through, now we're going to show the antagonist talking about their evil plan because now we need the audience to care more. And sometimes that feels like cheating to me a little mm-hmm. bit of like, oh, well, okay, so now you, you needed to come up with a new thing for us to care. So you had to change your mode of storytelling. I feel like this movie handles it in a really artful way where it's Caleb as protagonist lets us go on the greatest arc of learning about what's going on, right? Because he starts as, maybe not protagonist, as central character. He starts knowing nothing, ends up knowing everything. But along the way, as he's kind of forming his opinions on other people. We're seeing flashes of moments with Nathan and Kyoko and with Ava. And it's sort of Mm -hmm. is peppered throughout and then gets stronger and stronger as the narrative kind of does this magic trick of, for me anyway, making me be like, oh, I'm actually on like team Ava now. And it even, you know, is doing the thing where it leaves Caleb entirely so that there's a reveal in the third act that, oh, well, Caleb actually hacked everything the night before, which Mm -hmm. the movie didn't show us, which again, can sometimes annoy me. But for some reason in this movie, because there's enough of that omniscient point of view throughout it doesn't feel like cheating in the same way. So that's also just a really fun one, two punch with the Nathan going, I've been watching you and Caleb being like, well, I already did the thing. (laughs) Right. It's fun to see Nathan get his like comeuppance or just Mm. like lose the power for the first time. in the right. He's always at the upper hand. Mm. Yeah. So good movie to study about revealing information to the audience. I think Sage, what's your lesson? So I'm not sure how, how much of a lesson uh, it, it is, but the last like two shots of this movie are so packed with uh, stuff to unpack, I guess. <laughs> I just really love how they how they frame everything at the end. Uh, so I guess like the lesson could be uh, about like some of the philosophy in the in the movie uh, that I think is like hinted at, but not never like said explicitly. So like 
the whole idea with the box and the AI not seeing color, very evocative of Plato's allegory of the cave, Mm, right? Mm. Of, you know, you grow up in a cave, you only see shadows on the wall, you don't really, you know, there's a whole other reality that you don't know about, right? The second last shot of this movie is like when she's at like the intersection, but it's a shot that's upside down, Mm. right? So first of all, it's like, okay, you know, world's turned upside down, we got an AI in in the world. But also, you're seeing people walking, but you can't actually really see the people you just see like the the shadows Mm. on the street. So I think so I don't know how like if it's completely intentional, but for me, it's like they're doing like a Plato, like a Plato's cave thing right there at the end. Mm-hmm. Also, just like the shot after that, just the way they frame Ava at the end, like you see her, but there's no like wide of the intersection. Right. And I think it goes back to the idea of like the observer and the observed, like you're seeing her see other people. You're not seeing the other people like they're all like out of focus and and blurry. And but you see her there as far as a lesson lesson goes. It's like this movie does a really good job of like setting up all of its stuff in a really subtle way, like just in conversation. And it's never like called out or spotlighted too much. And then it just allows the ending to play out wordlessly so that the like the payoffs are hitting like just in in the visuals. Yeah, I I love the way those two shots are shot. And that it's the really bad version would be like you start on her face and then you like pull back and it's a wide and you see exactly like what street she's on. And it's like, and she's in New York and she's in the big city. (laughs) She's in Times Square. Mm -hmm. Right. How to not do it if you want people to think about, yeah, the deeper meanings and what this represents and and stay in that kind of mood space. So why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? Alex, what have you been watching recently? So I checked out the film Reminiscence on HBO Max, Mm. the directorial debut by Lisa Joy, who's the co-creator of Westworld. I am often quite frustrated with Westworld. I want to like it. I want Westworld to be a great show because I love sci-fi and I love stories about consciousness and AI as we've been talking about here. And it's, you know, Reminiscence is an equally kind of frustrating, uh, strange concoction by, you know, a, a creator, Lisa Joy, that is interested in really cool ideas like the setting of this movie is a post climate change Miami and it's like basically underwater and people are getting around by boats and people have moved into a nocturnal schedule because it's just too hot during the day to like bear being awake during the day so there's like already a really interesting setting that I haven't seen done with this kind of budget in a movie before and then in that world the choices that are made as far as like what story to tell are kind of baffling to me and it, it, it reminds me of Westworld where you have this universe with that's asking questions about consciousness and AI. And then you've got entire episodes where like the robots that we know are robots are still play acting and like going on a full adventure in like the Western town. But like there's no stakes because we know what's happening anyway. So similarly, in this amazingly cool, well-rendered post-climate change sci-fi world, we've got Hugh Jackman and Rebecca Ferguson like basically being like incredibly generic, like femme fatale and hard-boiled detective characters. Like she's actually literally like a sultry nightclub singer who's maybe like conning him. And he's like grizzled, hard-boiled detective with lots of grizzled voiceover uh, <laughs> obsessed with the woman. And like, that's what you did with like the setting and time. Uh, so like, <laughs> it's a, it was a very frustrating movie, just like I feel frustrated with Westworld a lot, which is, I don't know if there, that there's something in that mix and match approach that, other people find interesting i am just ready for a really good sci-fi movie about a post-climate change world uh that isn't also a like 
out of place neo noir. Just just like, just like a really cool movie about what it's like in that world without this kind of heightened goofiness almost. So reminiscence, very interesting artifact to check out on HBO Max. Very cool uh, rendering of a science fiction universe. But yeah, just like Westworld, I'm a bit confused as to why this approach was taken and wish I, I want my post climate change uh, movies. Uh, let's let's do it and make them like about what it's going to be like then. Yeah, uh, that'd be really cool. Reminiscence on HBO Max. Very interesting. If you want to check it out. I'm glad you brought it up because I, I wanted to see it, but I didn't know it was out yet. So yeah, I'm actually kind of curious now because part of me does want just like them as noir characters in a crazy right. setting. <laughs> I didn't not like enjoy watching that like like it yeah. was like it was it was fun to watch rebecca ferguson be a sultry uh nightclub lounge singer like why not <laughs> yeah she should be in more movies she yeah, should be in more movies and also the poster i'm gonna add that to the poster i didn't not enjoy it <laughs> <laughs> alex Kairos. brian what have you been watching something i did enjoy is mythic quest on apple tv plus mm-hmm. mm-hmm. which is uh, a show about a video game company behind this massive online uh, role-playing game so it's sort of like silicon valley but it's funny because i mentioned apple tv with ted lasso being the sort of like r-rated feel good where hbo is the r-rated feel bad mm-hmm. and it's like silicon valley everyone just like is miserable at the end of every episode <laughs> and mythic quest is a lot more like there's hope and there's emotions that people have it's by the creators of it's always sunny in philadelphia and it can have that similar chaotic energy but then it does come back and actually feel emotionally grounded where you actually care about the characters i would say like parks and rec is maybe a really close Hmm. uh analog in terms of like oh it's zany and it's kooky but they're real people and i care about them and uh, so yeah it stars uh, rob McElhenney, who co-created the show and uh is from it's always sunny and then charlotte nickdow uh i'm not sure if that's how you pronounce her last name she's the other lead who you wouldn't know her from anything else but she is hilarious and amazing and i can't wait to see her in a thousand more things but then the rest of the cast is ashley birch who is our favorite voice actor as aloy in horizon zero dawn and parvati mm-hmm. in the outer worlds and so many other things and she is awesome on the show craig mazin the writer plays a character on the show oh, really? as well as writing and producing the show. Oh, wow. Danny Pudi of community fame almost plays like a dark inversion of Abed. <laughs> F. Murray Abraham, who I haven't seen in like 20 years. I guess he was on like Homeland and stuff, but he was, he's in so many things. Salieri from Amadeus and he's like Scarface, all these things. And he plays this like totally insane old man who's hilarious. Kristen Milioti and Jake Johnson show up for an episode that they are the main characters of and the regular cast isn't even in the episode, which is a really ballsy move. Hmm. It's just, it's really a show that makes you care about it and then does things where you're like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that and that took guts and I'm really happy that you did that and then also has the best quarantine episode i've seen from any show that has tried to do to try to sort of like actually do that like a distanced episode and stuff um i won't spoil it but it was fantastic and the second season is done and they haven't announced a third season yet so please everybody go watch it on apple tv plus so that they get the message that we want more mythic quest that's cool to hear all that because that was one that i was like i think that looks interesting but i don't know anything about it Mm -hmm. and now i do and now i'm interested parks and rec is a very Hi, yeah, that's a great selling point for me. Nice. I will say the first episode had more of the It's Always Sunny energy. And I was like, okay, this is going to be maybe not quite for me, but I'm going to be happy watching it. But then it was like episode two or three where I was like, oh, okay, you actually are going to make me care about these characters and that kind of thing. So give it at least two episodes because it just, it takes like a little second to kind of get past all the, this is what this world is like stuff. 
I watched The Suicide Squad, uh, finally. I really enjoyed it. So, like, I remember seeing the first Suicide Squad at, like, 1 o'clock in the afternoon on, like, a Tuesday. And I got a free ticket at Arclight, and I was like, I'm going to do this with my time. I'm just going to go in the afternoon and watch this thing that everyone says is the worst movie ever made. (laughs) And I ended up kind of enjoying it because my expectations were really low. With the sequel, you know, there was a lot made about it and like James Gunn coming in to take over and write direct. So I was curious, maybe not excited, but curious, saw the trailer. The trailer felt a little underwhelming uh, and like maybe the humor was aiming for a younger audience Mm. and younger maturity level, perhaps. But I thought it was a really well executed movie. Like James Gunn clearly came to play and it's like, It's such a fascinating thing to hold up next to the first Suicide Squad, which was a mess from like top to bottom and just the way it was handled to see the same premise in the hands of someone that cared and was able to execute a vision, it feels like was just really enjoyable the way they kind of reset who the cast of characters is for this one, I think is smart and handled well and clever and every side supporting character like plays a role and has a little arc. And so it was clever and highly entertaining. And I just, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I feel like there were a lot of smart decisions made about how to treat it. And I'm just impressed when something like that can happen at this big screen. Idris Elba is great. I feel like this might be my favorite Idris Elba role, actually. He's really fun in this. And like (laughs) the dynamics between him and Margot Robbie. Yeah, I feel like everyone came to play and really brought it. And it was very enjoyable. So nice. The Suicide Squad. On I agree. Max. I agree. Excellent. <laughs> it's a good movie. I gotta see it, I guess. Yeah. Cool. Sage, what have you been watching? I just watched The White Lotus, mm. which is written and produced by uh, Mike White, mm. who everyone knows, but doesn't know they know, because he's the guy from uh, School of Rock. Like, Jack Black's roommate, who he's the like the teacher he's impersonating, is Mike White. He also wrote that movie. He has a special place in my heart because he also appeared on Survivor a couple of years ago, and I'm a huge, huge. I'm the most loyal Survivor fan <laughs> in the world, and he he played the game great. So it was like uh, what Mike Mike White, amazing. you know, he's like <laughs> like School of Rock was like 15 years ago, and then Survivor's a couple of years, ago, and now he has his own show. And it's good. It's really good. Uh, so it's kind of like wild to see someone's career go go like that. But it's basically just it's about a resort in Hawaii, really fancy resort for rich people. And the entire thing is just about like rich people on their vacation being really annoying. Um, and you just like, you know, your, your blood just starts <laughs> boiling watching it. And you just want these, you know, a few of these people to just, you know, get their comeuppance. It's kind of like like secession in that way is also on hbo the, the show has a great hook though to, that keeps you it's almost like a joke the the first scene of this move or of this tv show because it starts with a flashback that says somebody is going to die in on this like in the next week somebody's gonna die we're not telling you who mm-hmm. watch the show to 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 get that and like i was such a like a sucker for like the easiest easiest hook that you could ever write into a show just like <laughs> uh-huh. dead. you know yeah <laughs> it's effective yeah you watch a whole show just to like figure out that uh, or parts of a show to like just to get get to a mystery like that. But it's really well, really well written. So, yeah, White Lotus. Also School of Rock. I feel like that's like a mini lesson in and of itself almost is like just at the start of your movie, just put someone is going to die. And like <laughs> right. probably people 
Like, that's essentially what the mood and, like, creepiness of Ex Machina is kind of doing, is, like, yeah. something bad's going to happen. Yeah, right. Keep paying attention. Yeah. Was it Arrested Development that did that? And then at the end, it was like, oh, it was the old woman in the back, <laughs> in the background of that party scene. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this, like, the, this show, like, really kind of makes fun of that idea. There, there's something mm-hmm. that happens towards the end that's re- that's really funny about, like, you're wondering, of like, how they're going to misdirect you or if they're going to misdirect you. And it's, uh, it, it's clever. Nice. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been our conversation about Ex Machina. Sage, as always, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Check out Sage's channel, Just Right. The link will be in the show notes, of course. If you haven't already, I don't know what you're doing, but like, right. <laughs> do it if you haven't. You have no excuses. We want to say thank you, as always, to the patrons for making the show possible. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major, and our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Brian Bittner, Alex Cayeros, and Sage Hayden. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.